0: I'll start by saying how hard it is. In school that was never me. My whole personality in education was about being the smartest person in the room. The Family background being what it is, moved around a lot as a kid. The first school I went to in the UK was an East London primary school and I had a fight on my first day. I didn't want to be in the class that I was in. So I was in in the class on day one and I was crying my eyes out because I was like I don't want to be here with all these stupid kids because I'm smarter than they are. And the reality is if you're as an adult working through your career and you're much more invested in being the smartest person in the room you're going to be bored really really quickly it gets to the point where like you're either a narcissist and your entire joy is just from being the smart ass at work it humbled me enough that i was like i'm smart but i'm really not the smartest person in the world
1: and welcome to everyday leadership a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And as always, you know I've got an amazing guest for you in the building. Um, She's a very good friend of mine who I highly respect And by the end of this episode, you are going to know and understand a little bit about her. But you're going to learn so much. So without further ado, I'm going to ask her to introduce herself.
0: Hello. Do you know what? I actually feel like doing this. Something my brother-in-law does whenever he's (laughs) (laughs) celebrating. It's like, you know, you just kind of (laughs) radio moment. It's like hype hype, hype yourself. Um... (laughs) Uh, Hello, yes, I am Lola Yolayo Pearson. I am delighted to be here with you, Shopware, and talk about everyday leadership.
1: So like, if you say, if I say, who are you, what do you do, what you're about, how'd you break that down?
0: I am a technophile, first and foremost. I love all things tech. I love all things new. I'm like uh, a computer geek who likes to speak plain English and bridge the gap between the no's and the don'ts. Um, I like big hairy challenges I steer towards things that are complicated and difficult because why not Um, and as a boss described me as a few years ago I'm a bit of a magpie so career-wise I like to do things that are new and untried they look interesting and shiny but I'm not here to be like the rinse and repeat patterns and like producing the stuff that I've already done before so my current version of that is I'm a director of product at a uh, blockchain company called Mistin Labs. Um, and Mistin Labs have designed and built and launched what we call a layer one blockchain. So a blockchain that runs alongside as the foundational infrastructure, kind of like Ethereum. Um, but unlike Bitcoin uh, and more like Ethereum, Sui. the blockchain, is all about infrastructure. So. This is a foundation for running internet experiences. And my job is to try and bring those experiences to life. So 99% of people really don't need to care what a blockchain is or how it works. What they need to see is what problems are solved for me in my daily life and, oh, that's interesting. This happens to run on a blockchain, cool. And so my job is kind of to help formulate Products and experiences built by Missing Labs, but also things that are built in the ecosystem and make the most of this incredible infrastructure that now exists in the world.
1: Can you talk about new and exciting and not rings to repeat? I can't think of anything other than blockchain. That's <laughs> that's in that space for sure. I mean, this is it. What do you think? Like, you know, like I don't know many talk about
0: that? blockchain. Straight, yeah. like
1: you said, don't go to like Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot more to it and even now people are like oh yeah but that's that's all gone it's gone quiet but actually it hasn't as it's still relevant it's still real it's going to form a major part of our infrastructure in the way we're going to live in going forward in the next couple of years
0: absolutely so i think the thing the thing that people sometimes mix up when they think blockchain is they just think crypto is one thing and it isn't right there is like Bitcoin was the first um, successful execution of a blockchain technology product. So blockchain technology existed as a theory and a model before Bitcoin. And then Satoshi, whoever Satoshi is, decided to build a currency that happened to be a blockchain product. And so what it did was it proved the technology could operate at scale. And it proved that you could build an infrastructure that wasn't owned by a single party. And I think that's the important thing, right? This idea of like decentralization, normally a lot of our tech that we use is owned by one person. And I don't know if, if people have, anyway, this is super geeky, but like Tim Berners-Lee who's considered like the father of the internet talks a lot about when they conceived the internet and they thought about HTTPS and web protocols. It never occurred to them that like a handful of companies would own the entire thing, it was supposed to have much more distributed access. But the world we find ourselves in now is that literally very small amount of people own the internet in effect, and they kind of own us, they own what we do. They control what we do and their whims become how we are allowed to operate. The decentralized model assumes that no single person owns everything, and therefore more um, representation is possible. It's not always super effective, so let's not call it like the magic pill, the fur all internet. More access is possible for more people and more solutions can be represented, and no single person can essentially decide. The conditions that everyone else operates in, so there's like this very like philosophical umbrella that carries decentralization. There's also a reality that actually it could be more resilient infrastructure, right? So like when you think about um, when I think about what's potentially possible on um, Sui, which is the blockchain that we've got, we've got internet-ready speeds in terms of transactions. We've got a global distribution. And the majority of our users right now, the people who are actually interacting with stuff and trying out, cause it's fairly new blockchain are not in North America or Europe. And as a, as a black female member of the African diaspora, I'm like, hell yes. Let's talk about the fact that in Asia and on the African continent, people are able to engage with our tech. And do things on our tech and build things on our tech and like actually engage with it in a way that is not always possible for the next cool thing that comes on the block. Um, the other thing that I like about it is, you know, we've kind of all got into this world of like free internet as the model for building scale, which there's an argument that like people can't afford to pay for the internet. Therefore it should be free. Therefore it should be good. But there is always a cost to the internet. Service must be run. People must be employed to write code. People must be employed to design it. People must be employed to maintain it. Who pays that cost? And so the idea of free internet based on the internet as we have it today is kind of exploitative because you've got to make your money back somewhere. What I like about blockchains is that the crypto becomes an economic incentive for the network. So if I, a developer write code that is used by other people on the network I make that money back as the developer and I can be a one-man business um, or a one woman business um, if I as an individual I earn income and revenue by doing things on the network for other people it belongs to me I own those assets they're not I'm not you know, exposed to the whims of, oh, I'm just going to take that away from you. No, it is mine, it is a hundred percent mine. And so whilst this isn't like explicitly true for most people today, the thing that I have always really enjoyed about the blockchain concept and the opportunities, that things that can be built on a blockchain, is they kind of change the ownership structure back to like, as an individual, I own my efforts, I own my experience, I own the rewards. And yes, I own the downsides, but I'm not controlled by organizations who have a business model that maybe conflicts with what I want to achieve. And so blockchain is not so much like a completely new and different Internet. It's more, I think, a technology that enables the Internet to potentially operate in a bit more of a fairer way. Now, the challenge that we've got is it's 13 years old and people are still confused AF about what the hell it is, how it works and what they get to do with it and it has become a huge scam vector so because i like a difficult challenge i'm I'm just gonna (laughs) get in here and be like okay what can i bring to bear from like 18 years working in normal internet understanding consumer experiences understanding human behavior understanding the quality bar you need to hit recognizing that just because it's free and everybody can do whatever doesn't mean you can't you don't have an obligation yeah. to keep people safe, right? You have to think about safety, security, uh, reliability. How do we actually take those things and make them true on a blockchain in the way that they are true on the internet today? And so that's my challenge and it's a lot of fun because <laughs> it's it's conversations that you have every day. Like from one day I'll be talking about like, you know, how do we make it super easy for you to log in? Um, you know, how do we make it easy that people don't have to remember like, random hash numbers and values, which is super complicated for the average person, even me, I've lost money on on blockchain, um, how do we enable that? (laughs) Right, exactly. Everyone has a story. If you've tried it out, how do we make it possible for you to have an easy way in? But because it is this very different infrastructure model, how do we keep you safe? So letting you in easy also potentially means making Mm -hmm. it much easier for someone to scam you. So how do we serve that accessibility challenge whilst also maintaining a really high bar for security and trust? And like my company, we have literally the smartest brains in cryptography working side by side. So like I I join a conversation every Monday when my head hurts and we're talking about this concept of zero knowledge and cryptography, and I'm like, I'm making notes and everything has to be slowed down in my head. And sometimes I have to mute the conversation so that I can finish the thought to be like, so did they just say that blah means blah, and then this, and then I'll come back with a question. But what excites me about it is because I am the stupidest person in the room and they're doing this research. And then I can be like, oh, so that means we can do blah and blah. And your average person gets to have complete trust. <gasps> oh hallelujah and then i go take that in so it's just it's just mixing all of my interests in like one super geeky space we
1: ask you about that so you know you you get the the quote time and time again be the stupidest in the room what's it actually feel like to be the stupidest person in the room
0: so i'll start by saying how hard it is because in school that was never me i was like my whole personality in education was about being the smartest person in the room the first one to put their hands up like I was I was such a geek at school that um you know family background being what it is moved around a lot as a kid went to a lot of different schools the first school I went to in the UK was an East London primary school and I had a fight on my first day because I didn't want to be in the class that I was in right I was um i'd moved from spain and the education system there allowed you to skip years so i'd skipped two years of school and so i was eight years old going into year six which Uh you're supposed to be like 10 in spain moved to england and they're like here's year four because that's where all the eight-year-olds go so i was in in class on day one and i was crying my eyes out because i was like i don't want to be here with all these stupid kids because i'm smarter than they are Um, And obviously, you're going to look at this new girl who looks weird, talks weird, because she didn't grow up in this area or in this country, and is crying and not even trying to make friends with anyone. I was a very easy bully target. And so first playtime, somebody thinks that they can push me. But I'm like, Um, you don't know who my father is and what I have to live with at home. And you also don't realize that, like, that Nigerian steel (laughs) is steel. So I... I just went for it I was like you gave me a reason to fight today and today today we're gonna fight um but I was the geek who couldn't be bullied but they would always try but I fought like a cat I would scratch I would like I was small I was like I would fight I would kick I would punch and it there was this instinct in me that like no I want to be the smartest person in the room and I refuse to dumb myself down just because it's easier for you at the same time that doesn't mean you get to take my bag and just walk away or find it funny doesn't mean you get to push me and find it funny so teachers really struggled with me because I was in their headmaster's <laughs> office a
1: lot um you're smart and a brawler
0: <laughs> but I was still a smart and a brawler yeah it's kind of like the worst kind of kid um at the same time so so going into an adult environment where suddenly you have to pivot from being the smartest mm. person in the room to being the dumbest the thing for me that that killed the switch is whether or not I got bored and the reality is if you're as an adult working through your career and you're much more invested in being the smartest person in the room you're going to be bored really really quickly and so it gets to the point where like you're either a narcissist and your entire joy is just from being the smart ass at, at work or you need to figure out how not to be bored and so thankfully for me, university humbled me a lot. Um, I struggled with my first degree. It humbled me enough that I was like, I'm I'm smart but I'm really not the smartest person in the world and then it kind of gave me this path towards a subject matter that I was genuinely interested in that meant that I could actually get more out of being interested than being the smartest person in the room and I've just tried to kind of stick with that feeling and As you know, I love a coach, I've had coaches, um, I've been therapized to the max, and so I feel like it's not a conflict with my sense of self to be the idiot in the room. I just ask questions. I like make sure I know what question I'm going to ask and I ask the question and I don't feel like asking a stupid question is a bad thing because, but maybe not in my current company, but certainly in previous roles. The majority, there are a bunch of people in the room who probably have the same question you have, but don't have the confidence to ask. And so I'm like, I'm just going to lean in and ask a stupid question and, and maybe everybody finds a, a good baseline to move on from. So it doesn't stress me as much as maybe some people who knew me at school <laughs> think it would.
1: Did you always know what you what you wanted to do? One I think about you and talking about from a young age, being a geek, focused, no. like you got to refine the uni, but what was that path even before uni? What were you thinking of?
0: I didn't know what I wanted to do because I was good at so many things that it felt really hard to pick one, right? So like, this is going to sound really arrogant, but I remember when I did my GCSEs, I decided to pick, so my school allowed you to do like the standard set and then you were allowed to pick extra GCSEs if you were like smart enough, they gave you the option. And I was allowed to pick two extra GCSEs And i remember choosing spanish instead of french and the way the french department lobbied like i remember mrs Singham shah came and grabbed me at lunchtime she'd be like what are you doing why are you not doing french why are you doing spanish i'm like i can already speak spanish so i don't need to work as hard and like i have to work harder in french and she was like you don't realize what you're doing french is going to be more important like she she really came for me (laughs) and i I felt like I wanted to pick the subjects that I could enjoy doing, but not necessarily work that hard at. And so I gravitated towards those things and I did the same thing at college. I was like, um, I really like reading. So I'm going to do English language and literature more for me because English language, the difference between, you know, GCSE and A-level is a whole other thing. And um, so I hated it at college. And so I was like, when I pick my uni degree, I don't want any degree that's going to invite me to write essays. And I certainly don't want to write essays about a language that doesn't make sense. So I was like, I'm not doing English. So I went towards like engineering and computer science because I enjoyed it. Again, humbled though at university because I did an electronic engineering degree and that's hard. Like everyone else at uni had six hours of lectures. And it was theory and you could basically invent your response. I know I'm being super disrespectful (laughs) to some of my friends, but like it felt to me like they had an easy life. I was doing an engineering subject that had 26 hours of lectures, eight hours of labs every week. And there was a wrong answer. So there was no room for interpretation. There was just it was wrong. And then um, because it was engineering, we were literally electronic. We were literally wiring circuit boards for computers. And you could get marked down because it's fine. The traffic light works and everything is connected, but your wiring looks like trash. So I'm just gonna, you failed because your wiring isn't neat. And I was like, what do you mean? It works, do you know what it took to get it to work? And then you're gonna mark it down because it's a bit messy, do you know what I mean? So I really, I was humbled again at uni, but what I did discover was rather than going for stuff that was, I was kind of choosing something that I felt was easier than what I didn't like. I found topics that I actually enjoyed. So I kind of ended up pivoting my approach towards like, let me always go towards the thing I enjoy as opposed to go against the <clears> thing <throat> that I dislike. Because if I enjoy it, I'm willing to work harder at getting better at it. Whereas up until uni, I kind of had just been like, I can coast cause it's easy. So then I'll figure out what my next move is afterwards by picking the other easy thing. And, that pivot was was quite important, and I think career wise, a bit of luck, a little bit of serendipity, and yeah, just going towards the things I, I enjoy at any given time. Listen
1: to you talk about failure. We talked about before we came on came on this as well. Was that some of the failure that you experienced at university? Mm-hmm. Was that is that what's helped you to to deal with failure now in your career? Because you've held a number of senior positions in a number of different companies, and in what you're currently doing right now, and failure is something that you consistently go through mm. but it's something that can either knock us back or we can learn and evolve and go from yeah. so i'm guessing very curious to learn about some practical ways that people can learn how to be able to use failure in the way that sounds like you have done from a very young age
0: yeah i mean i think there are a couple of levels to think about that like my first brushes with failure for me were quite catastrophic like that that uni experience i talk about it in a fun way but like I failed my entire first year of uni and I had to come home to my Nigerian parents and tell them that I had failed. That if I did not pass the summer resets, I would not be able to continue university. And you can imagine their reaction that they're like super bright, super academic child came home without a pass to the next year. That was humbling. I was too old for the beatings, but I was definitely humbled by the responses to my parents. And I was put in a camp. I was kind of like, you're not going. What do you mean it's summer? You get to go out. You don't get to go out. You get to study. My mother literally was like rigid day by day. Um, I think the thing that I have learned about failure is there are two types of failure, right? There is like what you consider to be completely personal failure. Like you have let yourself down. And then there's like a failure in that. I tried something that didn't work. So now I need to understand what went wrong and how I can avoid this in the future. I absolutely adore the latter and mm. I try and avoid the former. And the thing about letting yourself down is you kind of need to know what you're about in order to kind of know where you're drawing your boundaries about what is you and what is not you. So. I don't consider a project at work, not working as a personal failure because I would like, unless I did the entire thing from beginning to end on my own, that is not all on me. Um, and equally, unless it is my business, quite likely the key decisions were being bubbled up and someone else was driving. Right. So it's not all on me.
1: Before you, like I said, just before you move on though, that's not an easy separation to make because it's like, well, the project is in my name, I'm leading it, therefore it is on me. So did you just, have you always had that separation from day or is it something that you had to also learn to do?
0: No, it is something that I learned to do. So my, I think it was probably my first job. I had an incredible boss who decided to sponsor me, right? And we could talk about this sponsoring. He would put me in situations regularly where I had no idea what to do. And then he would tell me that I could do it and then he would give me time to work it out and then I would end up being able to do it or not do it. And in that particular relationship dynamic, he taught me to always expose my thinking. So he was like, if you take this away and then try and do the thing and come back, it's either my response is gonna be yes or no. If you tell me how you're making decisions on a regular basis, I can help you understand where you might be making a bad decision. And that is something that then built on when I was working in agency, for example, like when you're in an agency environment in tech, your client decides, but you have to give them enough information to make the decision. So you always have to externalize your thinking. You always have to become very good at saying here's option one, Mm -hmm. here's option two, upsides, downsides, downsides, upsides, which outcome do you prefer? And it becomes a habit that says like at any given point, yes, I'm making the decisions. Yes, I'm in charge of the team. But my probably number one requirement is to make sure that we are opting in to the outcome that we all agree is the right outcome, right? And that means we accept the potential upside and the potential downside. If the downside then comes true,
1: yeah, that's well, well
0: we did our best, we tried, we aimed for the moon, but we were open, right? And so that my, Where I would let myself down in those situations is if I did a really poor job of communicating decisions and implications to the people around me. If I felt like I had never explained how I was making decisions or why, if I felt like it wasn't easy for anyone to follow me, then of course it's all on me. I effed up because I didn't take anyone on that journey. But the majority of the time, and as I've become more senior, I have realized how crucially important it is to be in that situation even when I'm coaching people who report into me if you don't give me enough information to make a good decision guess what I'm going to do I'm going to make a bad decision so your managing up has to be telling me here's option one and two here's what the implications are and at any given point I am choosing the risk that a certain set of implications come through sounds like it's a like a negative way to look at things, but like no situation in life, in work is pure upside. Everything comes with a downside. So what you're actually choosing as a leader Mm -hmm. is you're choosing the downside. You're choosing the downside that you think best sets up the environment. And when you're in a startup, you're hoping that you can mitigate the worst case downside at any given point in time. So you're trying to protect the upside that you want, but you're still choosing a downside risk. You're choosing to launch before the product's ready, because you need to launch. Otherwise you've got no revenue to keep the business going. Uh, you're choosing to pick this feature over another feature because this feature is going to help your biggest customer stay on board, even though it might wind up some of your people that, you know, you know, you were there before. You're always choosing a downside that you believe you can manage and an upside that you're going to aim for. So like, you know, just being transparent about your thinking to me is the way to make sure that when you fail. It's not a personal failure, it's a situational
1: failure. Like that breakdown actually of recognizing that you're shooting for the upside, but the downside is what you're managing. And I think that's not what happens a lot. A lot of times people just have to um, shoot for the upside. They don't think about the downside and then it happens like, oh my God, it's like, no. If you already have that in your thinking and you're holding it, it doesn't take you by surprise that you can react and move a lot quickly as well. Nice, okay.
0: Yeah, It's, it's not easy though, because I think, you know, especially when you're in a leadership position, you can't be all about the downside all of the time. Like half the battle is motivating people about what we can get, right? So you you also have to be optimistic. You have to lead forward, right? You have to be the person who sees the vision and can take people there with you. But like, if you're actually good at leading other people, you're doing that at the same time as carefully picking the downsides. So you're carefully, accepting the things that you know you can manage to avoid the things that would be catastrophic at any given point, whilst also being like, let's go here and let's keep doing that. And it's it's an art form, that's why some, you know, some leaders are terrible, some leaders are great, and the rest of us are just practicing for the rest of our lives, you know? We just, we're trying our best, but we, you still have to kind of find a balance, you know, in, in both.
1: If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcasts, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. And what's the second side of when you're talking about failure before I interrupted you?
0: so personal failure for me is more complex and this is like for me personal failure is much more about did I did I do my best right and so you know when I think about that career wise um I'm an all-in kind of person I've been an employee most of my career I've started my own stuff on the side none of it's worked yet But when i'm in it's because i'm like i love what i'm doing i really want to be here and i'm about what you're about and so i go all in but within that i kind of have my own i have my own set of values like what does it mean for me to want this what does it mean for me to do my best um what do i accept and not accept and where i feel the personal failure kicks in is i haven't represented my best i haven't been the person that i have decided is the best version of me um or I have accepted what is not good for me or I have allowed something to happen that really infringes on my personal value system and that's when I'm I'm much more challenged by that than I am by like work failures um and when the two intersect is in all of the difficult decisions that you might imagine right it's like Um, the higher, no higher. the, you know, you need to sack someone. Did you do your best for them? Did they get to grow under you? The, somebody said something hugely inappropriate in a room that you were in. Do you say something? Do you speak up? Do you report them? How do you handle it? And like those situations are really complicated because I wear them very heavy uh, on a personal level, but you have to learn to, to balance, right? You have to learn to. It's not always going to be on you. If someone else in the room messed up and you didn't say anything, sometimes you don't say, mm-hmm. anything, but it burns. um, or like you accept, you accept an outcome that doesn't align with your value system and you're just there like, am I okay with this? Am I about this? Do I, do I want to represent this? Um, and, and those are just challenges that I think if you're anybody's employee, you're going to deal with those challenges. Like full stop, because it's not your company. You don't get to make those decisions. Um, and sometimes I've been able to navigate it well. Other times it's just like, ugh, I failed. I failed myself. I failed my own value system. And that that's challenged. Actually, I'll tell you a story because uh, a mutual friend of ours is my coach. <laughs> hey, Wendy. Um, and when I was first <laughs> being coached by Wendy, one of the first coaching frameworks we went through was this kind of like transformative coaching exercise. And so I had to bring a question. I had to bring like, what is the thing that I would like to achieve? What is the outcome I would like to be like at the end of it? And I was going into a work situation that already challenged me, right? Like I was looking at it before I was in it and I was like, oh man. And I recognized it because I was like, I have quit jobs in the past. Like I have walked without another job to go to. I have decided to go on my Mm principle because of things that look like this. So I said to Wendy, I was like, I can see myself quitting, but I don't want to be in that position again, because I think this is ultimately a good thing. And this is a new level of my career. And I feel like I can achieve more if I stay and I can deliver more if I stay, but I also don't want to give up my principles. And through a couple of sessions, she defined my work persona as like the determined warrior. So like I would go into battle for my cause i would go in and i'd be like ready i'm squaring up i don't care who you are we're going to have some real talk the problem is when you're a warrior everything is a war and then you end up in zero-sum situations so she was like how about we convert the transform the warrior into an alchemist so an intentional alchemist became my target persona which is these two people care about the exact same things there is no conflict in their value systems but the warrior is going to go to war and the alchemist is going to find science to create gold from rocks. Right. And so what does it look like? Do you know what I mean? It's like, what does it look like to alchemize a situation rather than just burn the place down? Um, and I think we worked together for like seven months and it, it was, it was, it became about subtle things. It's like, when I feel like I'm alchemizing, I can feel it in my body at the base of my stomach. When I feel like the warriors in the room, it's in my chest. So my chest is high. I'm breathing shallow. I'm like, I'm ready. Oh, I can, like, my body physically tenses. When I'm alchemizing, when I'm alchemizing, I feel calm and I'm much more thoughtful and I breathe deeply. And so it was like, okay, if that's what's happened in the situations that you've enjoyed and not enjoyed, how about instead of realizing that after the fact, we try and trigger that, right? So if you're in a situation and you see yourself starting to breathe shallow and you feel it in your chest, Okay. I'm going to take some deeper breaths. I'm going to inhale, exhale, and I'm going to try and bring that feeling down to the base of my stomach so that now I'm looking at it like it's a science problem Mm -hmm. rather than fight. And it's an imperfect outcome. Like the warrior shows up still because you know, (laughs) Nigel babe till I die. The fight is just in my DNA, but I value the alchemist so, so much because You know, since we started that process, I was in a lot of situations where I would have quit or I would have burnt the place down or I would have just acted on pure emotion and rage, you know, principled, like not for rubbish reasons, not just random, but like genuinely, like I care about this. This is absolutely effed up, but the alchemist found a better way. And so now I always try and call in my inner alchemist. I'm always trying to be like, okay, where am I feeling in my body? How am I breathing? How do I buy some time if I need to go let the warriors rage out to go get the alchemist? Cause I can't always alchemize in the moment. So how do I buy that space to be like, okay, we got to go through a transformation and like practicing and practicing that daily. So that I'm always showing up in a way that allows me to solve a problem.
1: You know? And I think that's, for me, that's um, it speaks actually to the growth and development that we actually go through. Because there are times when we need to be we're in tough situations and this is we're here to actually help us to grow and to develop and to learn and to channel because you have that anger which is a good thing but anger used in the wrong way can burn but anger used in the right way can actually change and that's why i love that framework that you and wendy kind of worked through to be able to kind of bring those two together just recently in my newsletter i shared something i was like it's okay to quit. Like we talk about, yes, there's certain things you need to quit, but it makes more sense to quit situations yeah. when things are soft, when things are calm, when you've thought things through properly, when you've sent it and you're in, not just going off pure rage because yeah. a lot of times you might end up having some regret or it can have some an impact on other people outside of you. So, but I'm curious. So you said you have quit a number yeah. of times just based on your principles and your values. How many times? Um... Maybe like
0: three or four. No, because the thing is, right, sometimes, sometimes, and again, okay, so this is, I I value my confidence, but it sounds like arrogance, Um, but like, do these people know who I am? I, I don't care. But you know what I mean? It's like, there's, there's like you know, there's like a, a Nigerian way of saying, it. it's like, do you know who I am? Do you know who my parents are? Do you know what it took for me to be here in front of you? And you think I am gonna put up with this situation? I'll tell you about one example. So about 2009, I think it was, or 2010, I decided to go contracting. And I took a very well-paid contract working for an investment bank, which we shall not name. Um, and it was like a 12 month contract. They were going on digital transformation. They wanted to build an entire new suite of products and they knew they couldn't build it the old way in tech. They wanted to do agile. They wanted designers. They wanted research. They wanted it to look good. Um, and so they built this entire team, hired a ton of us and came in. And from day one, this place was confused about what it is that they actually wanted. Number one they asked us to wear a banker's uniform now i don't know about you but like i didn't go into banking for a reason so to ask me to now suddenly start coming to work in a suit was a problem and a bunch of us tried like i got some nice jackets from next um i would wear black jeans they started saying you can't wear black jeans um i would wear a t-shirt under a jacket they were like you need to wear a collared shirt i was like no 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 um we would have uh, things like they, you know, at the time I was kind of working in UX and it was like, you need to design this system. I remember being asked to design like a CRM system for traders. And I was like, okay, when am I going to meet the traders and interview them? No, 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 you can't interview them. What do you mean I can't interview them? They're too busy making money. So I'm like, so are you going to give me some training on like what trader systems do? What, what do you mean training? You're, you're the expert on users. We hired you to, I'm like, how do I design a solution for a problem set that I don't understand? And I'm not allowed to speak to the people who have that problem. Can you, and they were like, well, figure it out. So I did, I would sketch stuff. Then I would fold it and I would hide it under my t-shirt because we weren't allowed to take anything out of the building and I would go home. And then the following morning I would come in at 5am with coffee and meet some bankers and then I would take out my secret papers that I had hidden. So that I could show them something because I was like, I have no idea how you do what they do. I got one person, but I got in trouble. I got in trouble for disturbing the traders because they were supposed to be doing their morning stuff. I was like, how am I supposed to succeed? The final straw came when, um, because we were all kind of tech culture, not banking culture. And were, we were literally like a hundred people hired into this bank for this project. But we didn't know what each other was doing. So I implemented something that I had done at a previous job, which was like, we used to have cake Fridays where you would come in and talk to everyone about your projects. So was like, let's do donut Fridays. Um, No, we did donut Wednesdays because Wednesdays were quite quiet days anyway. So I would literally go down, it was in Liverpool street in London, go to the Krispy Kreme, buy like 24 donuts and just put them out on the desk and then invite people to just like spend 25 minutes just being like, what are you working on? This got noticed by the more banker-like people and they didn't like it because they were like, what are they doing over there? So I'm like, okay, whatever. My boss pulls me aside and says, "Um, how about we do patisserie Tuesdays at 8 a.m. in the morning in the meeting in the corner of the room? I'm like, no one's here at at 8 a.m. in the morning. Why the hell do we care about patisserie Tuesdays? Do you understand why I'm doing this? And he gave me this like... Um it's you know we just we just wanna create you know space, and it's like I totally get it and he he basically like just completely excuse my French but he shut the bed on explaining to me what the issue was, so his feedback was poor. I found out that the boss of the space of that entire project didn't like the look he just it, in his mind we didn't look like we were doing anything, so he kind of got this budget to do this, but we you know if we were drawing on paper, we weren't building anything because we're supposed to be coding right if we wanted to stick stuff up on the walls we weren't doing anything because it's like we're just making the space look messy if we wanted to wear t-shirts and jeans we just looked like we weren't like proper people and he was paying us a lot of money so he had these like really old school views um and i used to get into stand-up arguments with this guy because he would come to our reviews and just basically ask questions in a very antagonistic way i came to find out this was banking culture right the expectation is Someone can shout and you just listen and I'm like, I don't like being shouted at so I will shout back Um, And it just got to a point about seven months in where I was like, I think I can't remember what it was Oh, I I saw him shouting at one of the product managers that we worked with and he shouted her down in her face Like this guy was physically standing over her head blah 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 coming at her and she was just kind of looking down and And I was like Hell no So I went and (laughs) shouted at him checked. She was okay (laughs) pulled her away um but i didn't get in trouble for it i didn't get in trouble for it the next day i gave my notice and because it was a contract i only had to give them like two weeks i was just like i'm just going to work for my two weeks i booked a holiday for myself psychologically this guy found me and asked to speak to me in the hallway he was like why are you quitting i was like i don't want to work here anymore he was like but you're one of the good ones I was like I'm sorry he was like you stand up for what you believe in you're here to fight that's what we need we need you to stay and I was like no it is not my job to satisfy your need to fight with people I'm just not doing it and I walked away from him and I I think for anyone else it's like great brand investment bank great money you're getting a ridiculous amount and a daily rate I was like what do you mean you want me to raise my blood pressure every day to come in here so you can enjoy yourself and the work I'm delivering is just stressing me the hell out. There's not enough money in the world um and so I left. I found out afterwards that even before I joined and after this guy took a long time to get sacked by this investment bank, come and see mm-hmm. all of the h r claims against him, including by the women, the woman I had you know seen him shouting at, so many harassment claims, so much money was being paid out to people because he was such a problem. And I was just like, I refuse to be one of these problems. I am going to leave now. Thank you very much. And I was, the the surprise for me is that he came to tell me that he enjoyed the fights. And I was like, this is exactly why I'm not staying. Because it is not something that I enjoy. And I do not expect to be put in this position on behalf of anyone else on a regular basis. You couldn't pay me enough money for it. So I left.
1: I think a lot of times we, say the royal we, but people tend to make a lot of, should I say sacrifices and the weighing up like yeah it's a great brand yeah I'm getting paid but I gotta do this so let me just write it out and like you said being able to be like you know what nah this is not worth my mental health it's not worth the amount of stress and stuff like that and being able to just trust yourself and back yourself it is not always easy and people are like yeah but you're saying from a place of privilege like no sometimes it's the privilege is you is this what I want is this what I need in my life
0: well is this what I need? Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. It is a privilege that I have. It is a privilege. I have the privilege of being in the right time at the right place to the fortune of my parents. It means that my efforts get rewarded by the right experience with the right brands and the right job. So I ha- I left and every job I have left, well, maybe not in school, in um, uni times, I leave confident that I can get another job, right? I'm not leaving with this sense of worry about Mm. where my next role is coming from. I know I'm going to get another role. And I think that is partially confidence, but it is also a privilege that I have because I happen to live in the West where I'm in an industry where roles are abundant. And I started in this industry at a time when I was able to build experience in a way that is not available to young people coming out of university right now um I was put in a lot of scenarios where I was allowed to fail and learn and fail forward I think that is much more challenging for people today so I don't want to underestimate the privileged involved yes my value system in, in you know my head is high as people would say but it's also because I have this privilege that I'm very acutely aware of and part of me is like because it ends up being such an important signal for other people, I should mm-hmm. use that privilege. I should act with agency because black women rarely get to do that. um I should aspire to another role where I can be happier because you know what i'm playing my I'm paying my tax anyway. I'm supporting who knows what my my income is not me. It's not just me. It has never just been me. My income is many people's income. Um, So I might as well be happy if I'm going to have to do, if I'm going to have to portion my salary, I'm going to have to be happy while I'm doing it. So I don't resent the people that I am supporting with my income. So like there's a bunch of things that play into it, but it all boils down to a fortune of being born to my parents and the choices they made. Because if I had been born in a different country, a different slight model with all of my same intelligence, who knows?
1: Well, you've used your privilege in a very, very good way as well. You're one of the the leaders that I see. Whether it's been the UK, Canada, different countries you work for, you've been very intentional about like putting a ladder down for the people and just bringing in other people around you and building diverse teams, inclusive yes. teams, and collaborative environments, regardless of where you are. Why has been? Why has that been super important to you? Yes. And how have you been able to do it? When we also hear a lot of leaders saying, I can't do it. There's no talent. Yeah. And we know it's rubbish. But you've been able to demonstrate time and time again how to be able to do it.
0: So I don't believe in ladders. I want to build staircases with handles and like grand <laughs> staircases and maybe a couple of so lifts the in there, right? out Like I don't, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> it's just like, let's, let's make it even more accessible, right? So there are a couple of contradictions in there um that i think i see so like again i i have confidence in my own abilities and my capabilities but i don't believe i'm special i think i am fortunate in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways i had privilege of access and so what i try and pay attention to is okay i don't actually i am rare enough that i shouldn't assume most people have the same access so i I know when some people talk about equality um, there's this debate about equality of access or equality of outcome. And it is very convenient to rely on this idea that people who work hard will make it. And that, you know, the same outcomes are available to everyone else. I actually think equality of access is the fundamental issue, right? And the starting point that most people come from disadvantages them. They're already 10 steps behind everyone else. So this is why it matters to me to kind of build the staircase and say like, it's it's um i'm not religious but like you know the way in christianity they say it's not by my might like i i, I am the result of a bunch of incidents and decisions mm-hmm. made by other people so i can pay that forward by enabling other people to have access that isn't just easily afforded to them so that that is kind of the value system and i'm not always successful i'm just one person um but then the way that I do it is, you know, I have a lens that I can apply that isn't a free lens. So, like, if you have only ever worked in one culture, if you've only ever been raised in that culture, you might not recognize a good university from a different culture or a different country. When I look at a CV, I can look and recognize a top notch Nigerian university. And someone raised in the UK full time who only knows UK universities or like, Harvard, which is the only other one people know, may not recognize that that university is an amazing one. And so they might just think this person doesn't have the skills or the training, the educational background. I can see that. Um, Or I'm happy to Google that. Right. If it's if it's a university in India or somewhere else, it's like I don't assume that the familiar places are the best places. That's number one. Um, Number two, I think the industry that I grew up in career wise, user experience, my the people i learned the most from in my early years were people who didn't have the educational background even i did so they were career changers they were people who had been drawn into the industry because they had an innate way of thinking about what people needed or how to interact with people and so i found myself being coached by an ex-nurse an architect um you know people who brought a different lens and perspective and so my value system in my craft became one whereby I didn't assume that you had to have been taught this in a university or that only certain jobs gave me quality people. I assumed that anyone who had the right perspective could do this job and the perspective that they brought to the table might actually make them even more interesting than someone who's been trained in one way of thinking. And so like, I just try and bring those two things to bear. It's like, I, I, I will look at someone and it's like, okay, What is their mindset? Like I'm looking for a growth mindset more than anything else. I'm looking for like how you think and why you think, not a what you think. Um, I don't assume minds can't be changed. I don't assume you have to agree with all of my values to be a good person. I don't assume, um, that you need to have worked in certain places to be good enough to do this job. I actually look at the thing that you're presenting me with and I try and take a view on that instead. And sometimes you take a risk on someone and it's a complete failure and you're like, well, that didn't work, but I try not to over-index on that. And right? it's like, I have had some spectacular successes hiring in that way and like choosing to be around people in that way. And like, I'm just like, yeah, I'll, I'll use those to fuel me and try and think about it. And again, it's, it's influenced things like, you know, in my last job, we had a hiring process that included a, a interview style that. I was incredibly uncomfortable with when I went through it and I was literally like, I, I, I didn't know how to prepare because they didn't let me prepare. And it was an interview that they loved. And it was kind of like, this is how we discover people's innate growth mindset. And I was like, I come from a culture whereby you need to ask me a direct question so that I can answer because it is rude to assume your expectation. And as somebody who was even raised in the UK, I struggled with that interview. And speaking to a couple of other people, I realized, oh, great. It's not just when you're Nigerian. It's also when you're from India. It's also when you're from East Asia that you struggle with that interview because these are very um, cultures ingrained in this idea of respect. And the recruiter, the person who's interviewing me, somebody I have to respect and impress. So why the hell am I just going to keep talking? But the interview, they just wanted you to keep talking and I was like, we have to fix this so I agreed and I signed it off with my manager and a couple of other people that when I brought a candidate to the table who I felt may struggle with this interview I was going to coach them on the interview so they could pass the interview because it wasn't a technical interview it wasn't a like let's assess your skills it was just Mm. a mindset interview
1: you know
0: know what I'm talking about so in that (laughs) in that in that particular example to me it was like as somebody referring people in Is that interview a fair assessment of their actual fit in the company? Some could argue, yes, they're not a cultural fit if they struggle with this interview, but that's going to end you up with a very homogenous culture inside the company, and that's not necessarily what the company wanted. So you do actually need to find people who think about the world differently. And so I was like, okay, well, for those people, I won't coach them on the technical interview, because we do need to do a fair assessment. I will coach them on this one because they need to know that it's going to be weird and that they need to keep talking. And so there are little ways in which you can do your bit. And I'm just, I'm always here for it. I'm always here for it. I don't, you know, I don't have time for it all. Um, my LinkedIn inbox <laughs> ah, scares me <laughs> uh, because <laughs> the amount of messages, i tr- I just try not to think about it. It's bleeding into my personal inbox. Like I don't get back to people quickly enough. I recognize that I accept that limitation that I will try, I will try and respond. I will try and get back to people. I will try and help. I will try and have coffees. I will do CV reviews. I will do portfolio reviews. I will share the gems because I'm not special. I just have access. So I might as well help someone who might actually be special and just needs a bit of access, right?
1: This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out and from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of the organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions on align. We we'll help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that you'll experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year. But that's something that you're interested in. If you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level, send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to the website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. All right, let's get back into today's episode isn't that a massive burden for you to carry your shoulders like you said you've got your own job you're doing you've got your own family that you need to look after as well as well as looking after yourself and then on top of that to be dealing with all of this
0: i think i used to feel like i had an obligation i think now i carry it a lot more lightly it's just if i can right i will not save all people I will not get everyone a job it is not my responsibility to get everyone hired conversely I hold an incredibly high bar personally like I only want to ever work with the absolute best people and just because you didn't have access doesn't even doesn't mean you're the best person either right so like I'm not just it's not like a free-for-all for anybody here um but my sense is when I can I do and if I can't I don't it I'm not I don't feel guilt I mean I feel guilt about my inbox because there's some you know sometimes that gets a bit high but I don't feel guilt in the sense that it's a burden it's more that I enjoy doing this I'm happy to be able to do this and it would be nice to kind of catch up but at the same time I've been doing it for so long now and people do know that I do this that demand has outgrown capacity and there's no way I'm wearing that heavy it's just you know if I can I will and if I can't I can't and I think if most of us did it that way as opposed to like assuming either I can help everyone or I need to help no one so okay. just help who you can help
1: you mm-hmm. know in
0: your little way do something and it's good you know but don't feel guilt for what you can't do because that's life
1: talk to me about the curse of being competent
0: the curse of the competent I don't know if I made this up or if someone said
1: it to me yeah, but you I've made been it using like this it, with that. It. This, is, this is yours this is yours this is yours the of curse
0: of the competent <laughs> Okay, let's go. It's mine. I'm claiming it. Okay, okay. TM. TM. Yeah, trademarked. Um, I think the... So as I said before, like I was good at many things through school and like one one of the things I've always found myself is like if you ask me to do something, I will try and do it and I'll try and do it to my best. What happens though is that people find that you can do something that they can't. So they keep asking you to do that thing. And depending on the situation you're in, they may ask you to do everything that you can do better than they can do. And instead, and and, and what happens in that is you get uh, you get the kind of the, um, the emotional feedback. Oh, thank you so much, I'm so glad you're doing this. Honestly, when you do this, it's just so much better than when I do it. Or like, everyone is so amazed that you can do all this stuff at the same time. So like, thank you. And you kind of are like, yeah, man, they recognize me, they value me, they know that I'm working super hard for them. But you don't always ask yourself if you like what you're doing if you actually want to do it and if it gives you energy versus drains you and so the curse of the competent is what i call that situation you find yourself in where you're being asked to do a lot and it's starting to feel heavier and heavier and heavier and you're stuck between this place where it's like i know i'm good at it but actually i'm starting to realize i don't even want it and you, you don't know what to do right and so I use that phrase for myself, um, because I have found myself in that situation a lot and it's, it, you know, I've had to claw back this idea of like, I need things that feed my energy and especially when the extra things are not in my job description. So no, I can't do all of these side things for you. I can't add to my job when it doesn't, when it drains me. If it serves me, if it gives me energy, if I find myself thriving and I enjoy it, of course I can say yes. But if the opposite is true, I need to stop saying yes just because it allows me to feel good when this person tells me thank you or says that I'm the only one who can do it. And I'll tell you this, people of colour, we find ourselves in here all the time because this is how they underpay us and overburden us. Um, or the curse of the competent competent can be the path that someone finds themselves in with the promise of a promo that never happens because what's actually happened is they've made you super busy with things that are off the critical path like your promo is going to come from you being a crafter that is exceptional at the next level it is not going to come because you said yes to every meeting every workshop every parallel exercise that someone asked you to do that doesn't directly speak to your craft competencies, right? Like, and that's that generalizing across different companies and stuff. But I have mentored people who found themselves in a curse of the company, I'm busy. Um, or there's actually an engineering term as well, where like, I can't remember what it's called, um, glue work. There's a great article written about glue work, where like female engineers find themselves being the ones to take notes in meetings, Or to organize the team activity because someone needs to do it and then everyone's so grateful and it's like oh thank you for doing this i really appreciate it but then you end up doing more glue work than engineering work and then when it comes to promo you can't see your code because you spent all of your time gluing the team together and that is not recognized as work and so like i think curse of the competent is the same kind of thing like don't be fooled into thinking just because someone's telling you how great a job you did that the job you're doing is either the thing you like and that gives you energy or even the thing that you'll be rewarded for and i'm just i try and find a balance for myself so that i'm not wasting my time or anyone else's time
1: if i say no if i don't do the glue work if i do, do all the different bits and pieces it's going to be looked at very very negatively we all know when you talk about people of color for example using the uk as a good mm-hmm. reference if i don't go out to the pub and um, build that social capital people we know how much that can influence your career and kind of slow you down. Exactly the same thing can occur in this scenario. So how do you balance that and recognize when, okay, I shouldn't be doing this because it's not helping me, it's not serving me, it's not helping me get to that next level. And there are times when actually I might step Mm -hmm. into that, but I just need to have my boundaries in place as well around that.
0: So this connects back to the other thing that I said earlier on about like making your thinking transparent. If someone asks you to do something that's extra and you're like, okay, I want to say yes, because they've asked me, but I've got all these other things to do, you say, oh, great. I'm so grateful that you asked. Um, Hey, look, these are the five things I'm already working on. Is this new thing more important than any of those? Should I drop anything? Cause then you've agreed that the priority has been set. That's number one. Number two then might be like, oh, this is um, this is a really great opportunity. Um, I think I have capacity for it right now. But here's a future date where there's a boundary coming, and like as you and I have agreed previously, this is something that you really wanted me to invest in. Or number three, I am very interested in progression and career progression. This thing you've asked me to do, can you explain how it leads? me to promo how it might help me demonstrate what it is that you're looking for like make them connect the dots and that is the best way to put yourself in, in a situation I literally did this recently with my new boss um, there were a bunch of things that were that were coming my way because it made sense and then came the last thing that he wanted and we were texting on the weekend and I was like so here's a list right now and I don't have the ability to do this other thing. So I'm going to need you to find someone else. And he was like, oh, okay. Do you know what? Fair enough. Thanks. And it was just this conversation of just like, you've already asked this many things. And to him, he didn't necessarily want to overburden me. He just wanted to kind of like consider, he thought I would be the best person to do that thing. But I was like, yeah, but is it more important than everything else? Um, And he needed to make that decision, not me. So I think the way to find yourself not in that situation is to just communicate, communicate, communicate. And especially when it's your boss, you're not saying no, you're just asking for prioritization. You're not saying no, you're just trying to connect the dots between how that's going to get you to your agreed review path or your agreed promo. And then it always feels like you're a yes person, but you're an implications person, right? Do we want this outcome or do we want this outcome? And we pick between them. Not always easy, but I think if you're, positioning it as communication then it's hard for them to say that you say no to things
1: so with your busy lifestyle busy inbox you're starting a podcast what's it called and why mm-hmm. okay. oh.
0: lost in tech so yeah so this is something my uh, co-host and i mamuna who's an incredible is. person who you know and who i have worked with We share this need to build staircases and grant access and to speak to our communities and to talk talk at like women in tech groups and black people in tech groups and like to advocate for opportunities for a wide range of people to thrive in their careers. And we have both done that in lots of different ways. We've built programs at our employers. We do talks, we do mentoring, we do coaching. There's only so much capacity you have as you are more senior in your career and you have a family and you want to watch TV sometimes. Um, So we came up with this format called Lost in Tech, which is basically like we want to be tech agony aunts to people who are struggling with their careers. Touchwood, we have both been fairly successful we've had long careers to date we're still enjoying good experience in the tech world that's not true of everyone else or people are dealing with scenarios that we have been in before so we're inviting people to write to us send us their letters and we will take help them think through how do you solve this problem and because we're all lost in tech together it's a community exercise and through that hopefully we help address the inbox drama we're like there's somebody in there who sent me a message who desperately needs an answer. Somebody else has the same question. And so I can help more people with the podcast and we can share more guidance. Um we've recorded a few episodes already. Our first episode uh, yeah I don't know when you're launching this, but our first episode came out yesterday from when we're recording this. Um but we've got letters from people who are trying to define their role, from people who are trying to figure out if they've got a um an obligation to a current employer if they go to a new employer so we've got a bunch of different topics we talk about ai we talk about blockchain we talk about being parents we just try and provide this human perspective and lens and honestly like in terms of podcasts i listen to a lot of them but there's a split between black podcasts and tech podcasts that feels almost absolute it's very difficult to find a tech podcast where you're talking about um tech specifically or things happening in the tech domain that just happens to be delivered by people who are not default white and and i hope i'm not offending anyone by saying that but like she and i have very different perspectives she grew up internationally i grew up internationally but she ended up in the us i came from the uk we share a lens that is complementary but different and we see people who are not often seen and so hopefully with lost in tech we're just creating a space where a different type of person gets served by like a very tech podcast and sharing a little bit of our own joys of being somewhat geeks in, in this industry. I didn't
1: industry. know the episode came out yesterday, so I'm actually looking forward to to delving into it. Is it gonna be a weekly thing monthly thing? How often is it gonna be coming out?
0: It's gonna be weekly. We've uh, We record weekly and we've got a few episodes banked, so we will try and maintain the weekly cadence um we've both committed to making the time to make this happen long term um and so yeah it's going to be an enjoyable process i hope um and i look forward to just getting more and more letters the initial letters we've had have been so good already and they allow us to touch on a bunch of different subjects so getting more and more letters in and different challenges will really help us to dig into like how much do we really know um the other thing we have is we also have experts that will call in from time to time so we have people who are not us who may be able to provide a different perspective on the question. And so they will also be joining us on the show from time to time to help lean into the, to the writers, uh, issues.
1: My last question for you would be, how do you define leadership?
0: Um, courage. Thank you, Brené Brown. Um, authenticity and agency um I'll start with agency I think as a leader you have to lead from a place where you are directing your path because we have all worked with those leaders who clearly don't make any of their own decisions and it's quite transparent and it's difficult to follow that leader um, and so to me, having agency as a leader, so I can credibly say why I'm here, I can credibly say what motivates me, and I can credibly say what I intend to do is hugely important. Authenticity is also important because you're just we're just humans at the end of the day and pretending to be a robot or a machine because you're in charge is BS and everyone can see through that too. Um, but people connect to people. Um, There's a really great book I read a long time ago called Tribes by Seth Godin. I know Seth Godin can be a polarizing feature, but Tribes for me was quite an interesting read because it's a really quick and easy book. And it was this idea of leading from the middle, you know, like being a person that the people who follow you or who you lead can access and authenticity is a huge part of that they need to connect with who you really are, even while they believe that you're the right person to lead them or, you know. Um, or especially when you're going to make hard decisions that they don't understand that authenticity of connection needs to exist so that they can trust you with that decision. So authenticity matters to me. And then the final one is courage because I mean, if there's one thing you're going to do in leadership, it is make really hard, difficult decisions. Some are exciting, some are heartbreaking, but you can't shy from making decisions. Again, we have all worked with leaders who don't decide anything just in case. There may be people. They're let's see people. And it is heartbreaking when you're a motivated person working in a team with someone who just doesn't ever decide anything. So as a leader, you have to have courage. You only get so much input. You only get so much information. And then from there, you have to act. Um, and sometimes you have to act despite the little thing in the back of your mind that says what what about what about what about and so courage is important there so those, those three things for me courage authenticity and agency
1: i think it's always great to be able to hear someone describe leadership but also to personally know how much you exemplify those three different points so right from the start that this is this is this is why like just love kicking it with Lola. Like, la, la. we can go back and forth on so many different things, and we have so many different opinions.
0: So, <laughs> but many. it's
1: always real talk. <laughs> you're always very authentic. You walk your talk, you model everything that you're talking yeah. about, and you're also someone who's very humble with it. Um, with all the different success and stuff that you
0: am, I humble. I sound that. arrogant.
1: In my i own to What you, I you were, sound arrogant to, it's like, to who? Like, who <laughs> sound arrogant to? Everything you're saying is based on. There you go. See, there's that self talk. No, it's based on who you are, yeah. what you're about, where you show up. But mm. other people can speak to as well. There's loads and loads and loads of people who yeah. can speak to every single thing that you can describe. So you walk in me saying, I can say confidently you walk your talk because I've seen it personally and I'll with it as well so it is it's a pleasure that. like there were so many things yeah. that we could just have gone into I was like you know what her time we gotta respect it we gotta keep it down we gotta respect that time but as she said they got a podcast now you can hear a lot more of her thoughts Mamuna's thoughts you yes. can write letters I'm gonna make sure I share the links when this comes out as well so you can just share a thought if you didn't in the tech world you can ask them some questions yes. and get that insight make sure that happens and let's keep on supporting that yes and more importantly thank you Thank you for just being real and being who you are Thank and you. coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you for your patience and <laughs> getting the time. And Come I'm on.
1: super grateful to have been on the this show. This is there with the leadership. <laughs> you <on> <laughs> three. While you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. So I went on my lunch break and I phoned my, um, the job training provider, a woman who actually st- I'm still very very close with today, a lady by the name of Lynette Douglas. I called Lynette and I said Lynette, I'm going on, I'm going on. She's like what's happened? So I have told her, you know, it was all that, excuse my French here, do they think I'm a dickhead? Do they think I'm this? You can bleep that out, Shopee, do they think I'm that, do they think I'm this? Um, as I never knew how to navigate the workplace at that time. You know if you're unhappy with something or the need to express uh, frustration I never knew how to do that so I just walked away and that was my first ever sort of right this isn't for me but I, I don't